You're listening to the Ones Ready Podcast, a team of Air Force Special Operators forged in combat with over 70 years of combined operational experience, as well as a decade of selection instructor experience. If you're tired of settling and you want to do something you truly believe in, you're in the right place. Now here's your host, former prep course ops superintendent and current special reconnaissance training guru, Trent Segmiller. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another Ones Ready podcast. You are in the team room. First off, just like always, we want to say thank you for subscribing and for commenting and for telling all of your friends about this podcast. We really appreciate it. Five-star reviews all across the board. Y'all are awesome. We usually do a a company that we talk about, one of our our affiliates, one of the people or one of the companies that supports us. I think we're just going to skip over that today because the podcast is kind of one of those uh, things we're going to be talking to one of our our best friends out there that's been supporting us since the beginning. So our guest today is a former Olympian, entrepreneur, innovator, pilot, and from what his employees tell me, a, a pretty good person, all around good human being. So we have Glenn Everly of Everly Stock on the podcast today. So Glenn, we really appreciate you coming on, and if you don't mind, uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, it's uh, I appreciate the invitation. I don't do this professionally, so if I screw it up once in a while, then just bear with me. Um, but I, but I do uh, appreciate the opportunity to talk to you guys. Not I mean, just to meet you, like you know, via however people meet these days. Hi, but uh, also <laughs> hey, it's um, okay. Yeah. We know each other the same way that Trent and I know one another now, so this is perfect. Like we we haven't actually like occupied the same space. We probably passed each other in a hallway, but he probably looked at me and was like, "That's an arrogant PJ. I don't want to be his friend. Right, <laughs> Not right. friends." That's funny. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, um, I'm, I'm in my office at Everly Stock in Boise, Idaho. And, uh, you know, I, I'm actually, I, you, you, you touched on some of the highlights of my life. I've had a pretty colorful existence so far and I'm hopefully only halfway through it. Um, and, uh, but yeah, you know, what people know me as primarily now is the company Everly Stock. Um, that started, I, it, it, I came to it through a real strange path. Um, uh, I'm old enough to have been in college in the eighties, probably before you guys were born. And, uh, Hey, Hey, I, we were, we were born. We just weren't very useful yet. Okay. So let's just mucho. Yeah. Take it easy. Right on. Okay. Peaches so, was the same so, height. Uh, yeah, I grew up in a snowy place in Idaho and uh, was a ski racer. And along the way, discovered the sport of biathlon where you, where you do cross country skiing and shoot guns. Super fun. A lot more fun than just skiing. And, uh, and I was pretty good at it, became good, you know, quite good at it. And, made my way onto the U S team, which led to the, me being on the 1984 U S Olympic team. Um, that was when Russia was bad and I guess it still is bad, but that was when it, the Iron Curtain was out there and the Olympics were in Sarajevo, Yugoslavia on the other side and pretty cool place to go in those days and really a neat experience in my life. Um, so that was 1984. I was a uh, college, I don't know, sophomore or so junior, something like that. And, uh, uh, in, in 85, um, you know, we were carrying at the time these, these fairly heavy rifles. They were Anschutz target rifles, really cool, you know, precision rifles, but pretty heavy. Um, people thought at the time that you had to have a heavy gun to shoot when you're standing there on snow and in, in, in Liker tights. <laughs> and, uh, and so, uh, uh, you know, we had these 11 and a half pound target rifles, but they broke really easily if you fell on them. And, and we fell once in a while, no matter how good a skier you were in certain conditions, you know, you take, take a, a header and uh, if you fell, the, the rifles typically broke in half. And so 
Um, having done that and been a poor college kid, I decided to try to make a better rifle stock. That led me to take a lot of weight off the stock as well as make it stronger. Um, it's so, so much so that it made a significant difference in how fast we could ski. When I say we, you know, before long, the whole U.S. team was using them. And, uh, and it really changed the sport in the 80s to the, to the point where in 1986, when we went to the World Championships with these new Everly stocks, um, we were substantially better in the rankings uh, and the Europeans were alarmed because they didn't have anything like it. They could look at the Everly's stocks and go, Holy shit. Look what the, look what the Americans have. And, uh, They're cheating. Huh? They're cheating. That's probably yeah, what they were. Exactly. They, they accused us of cheating. They actually, they wrote a rule that said you can't use those things. Then, And we're like, what do you mean those things? They said, well, you they wrote a rule that said you can't use rifle stocks that have holes in them. And so, because mine were all skeletonized and whatnot, it was just a silly rule, but they were just trying to eliminate what I had that they didn't. You know what, European countries? Sanction us with your army. Go <laughs> ahead and have, have NATO's army sanction us and then go ahead and enforce right. that rule. Right, yeah, it's, it's about like that. So so basically, we you know fought it off and, and, and they finally realized that they were going to lose that argument and, and ultimately just asked me how much the thing weighed. And so instead of 11 and a half pounds, seven and a half pounds. And Ooh, that that's became, a big drop. yeah, four pounds off the gun. We, I mean, we could ski over a minute faster in a 20 kilometer race, which, you know, well, to, to put it in perspective, in 1987, an American won the first medal in the world championships, you know, and, and, and a guy named Josh Thompson in the 87 world championships got silver and that had never happened. And since then, the American team has been contenders. I think a lot of it is because we, I mean, the stock certainly helped, but also we were a bunch of tough, you know, young athletes. And um, so a couple of things were going on in the 80s. One is the playing field wasn't level. We were fighting against uh, cheating European, uh, you know, doping programs and Russian, you know, and East German uh, med programs that we didn't have. We were all just poor, poor college kids. It's um, always the East Germans, isn't it? If they're not giving somebody a seven when they should have gotten a nine point five in figure <laughs> skating, they're taking way too much trend and getting jacked. Right, right. Actually, some of the worst guys that were the West Germans of the day. So it, there were there was you know doping. It's kind of like the Tour de France. Everybody was doing it except for the Americans. In this case, weren't we were pretty honest and uh, and but the you know the stocks were a secret weapon and they they definitely put us into the contention there for a while and then eventually. Um, that a rule was written that said that that no uh, biathlon rifle stock could be lighter than seven and a half pounds, my number, and uh, and so now virtually everybody in the world uses a rifle that light. But the Americans are still in, in contention because uh, most of those doping prog- programs that we were competing against have been shut down for one. But then for two, you know, there's something psychologically about getting in there. Once you're in there, you want to stay in there, and and the and the team generally has that more competitive, you know, in the game mentality now so that's kind of cool so i had a lot to do with the start of that it's that was a long time ago well that that's uh that's pretty funny too like you're doing kind of the same thing that we're trying to do like you revolutionized the game and it actually helped out with recruiting so then you started recruiting even higher and higher talent that that has made you know the american team the american biathlon uh teams i bet that's why they're that competitive yeah 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 it definitely invites when when there's a team that's winning people want to be part of it and and you're absolutely right yeah I think one of the most important things there is also, you know, it's the same as where we do with our kit. We try and make as light as possible. Ounces make pounds, as you say, all all the time. You know, 
we strip down our MREs, we take out the cardboard, we take out, you know, as much weight as we can and make everything as accessible as we can whenever we're trying to go get our stuff ready for whatever we're going to end up doing. Um, so that's huge. And that's transferred straight over to anything you do. And, uh, I think they're talking about a lot of the Olympic ski teams and back in the day, you know, 1%, uh, better the British ski team or something like that got better because they're, uh, practicing doing 1% better each, each day, like, you know, make their skis a little bit lighter, make whatever they can a little bit lighter, giving yourself that little advantage because at that level you're facing other Olympians that are, I'm sure in phenomenal shape compared to, you know, the normal human being, which we kind of breezed over. And I want to go back to that whole Olympic thing. Cause we have guys that are training their butts off, just trying to get up to the soft level, not the Olympian athlete level, but you know, it is a, a difficult job to just get yourself up to that whole level. Uh, so can you go back to talk about a little bit, um, on how you trained and kind of what it was like to train, to be in the Olympics. And you kind of breezed over. You're like, I grew up in Idaho and I was really good at skiing. And then I just, <laughs> yeah. and then some things the happened Olympics. and then I found myself <laughs> I, winning. I feel the like Olympics there was right a little bit more to it. <laughs> yeah, there was, I, I suppose so. I mean, I did work hard. It, you know, it was, it was a solitary sport back in the day. I mean, even though, even though I lived in a snowy place with a, a ski culture, uh, you know, as the eighties and uh, now cross country skiing is much more mainstream than it was then. There weren't many people around that were, that were, that were doing it in America at the time, but I, I had the good fortune of having a really great mentor. And one of the, what, you know, one of the secrets to my success in various things in life has been mentorship. And in this case, uh, this fellow named Mac Miller was a Finnish uh, man who, you know, a Finnish immigrant. They lived in, in America now, but um, he still had the Scandinavian, you know, ski blood in him. And, uh, and Mac took me under wing and, and, you know, the greatest gift he gave me was, uh, was teaching me to be efficient. And so what you talked about, you know, being light and fast, that's really important, um, strong and, you know, uh, in, in, in developing strength and endurance are, are of course very important, but, something people don't think about oftentimes is efficiency. And so the truth is I was not, um, you know, physically, um, when I was younger, um, in the league of some of the people I was able to compete against, but I knew how to move over snow. I knew how to, how to step over, you know, variations in the snow so that they didn't slow me down. And, and, and I just, I, I had this grace on snow that, was, you know, taught me by Mac. And later it was funny, actually, um, in the late eighties, when I was still on the U S team, uh, I was told of a conversation that was happening by these guys on the Norwegian national team. And, you know, the Norwegians are as good as they, as as it gets when it comes to being Mm -hmm. efficient and graceful on snow, right. On, on, on cross country skis and a lot of them on, on Alpine skis too. So uh, anyway, I heard these guys that were, they said, they, they said, Hey, you watch that Glenn Everly. He skis like a Norwegian. And I was like, you know, <laughs> I never won an Olympic nice. medal, but that, that was one of the greatest takeaways that I, that I ever, uh, you know, could have had just cause it was That's a big compliment. compliment. That is yeah. a huge yeah. compliment. <laughs> yeah. We've all I, trained a little bit with some of those guys in, uh, different areas around Nor- Norway and, uh, yeah, we definitely don't ski like Norwegians say they're you know they're born with skis on their feet and that's a that's yeah. a true statement you know Brian and I had the and I think Peaches did you did you do the allied course or did you just train with them for cold response and stuff no we I didn't do the allied course but we I did things with them outside of cold response yeah, yeah. as well as cold response yeah, yeah. just a, yeah, yeah. a phenomenal so, like they're a different breed man so they really are. great great dudes phenomenal athletes 
and they're hard. They those hard. dudes are like hard. woodpecker lips, baby. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so that, that's some of that back history. Um, and I, I guess just let me kind of continue a bit of the story that's, you know, that, that makes all this make sense. Well, so I started with these rifle stocks for biathlon and I was a college kid. And, and uh, I, you know, another one of those kind of elemental mentors in my life, a guy uh, who'd been a little league baseball coach and boy, I sucked at little league baseball. In fact, the, the year, the season I can remember best was one in which um, I wasn't able to make all the games, about half of them. And every game that I went to our team lost and every team, every game I wasn't able to go to, they won. <laughs> so it was like, it was like <laughs> it's a coincidence. Yeah. Baseball is <laughs> superstitious. Yeah. You know, I'm sorry, Glenn, you got to go. You got to get of, out of here. Kind of like, you know, that, that, was, that was sort of emblematic of my childhood, <laughs> but, um, uh, anyway, this fellow, his name was Bill Whirlin, and he later became the president of the, of the North Face. And so I was sort of, you know, the, you know, kid hero, and I always thought he was a cool guy. <laughs> and and, uh, and then he went and became that, you know, the involved in these cool companies. And at one point was the president of the North Face. And um, and so he was sort of out there in my mind's eyes as this, this you know, what you could do kind of a, a idea, I guess. And then... Um, while I was making these rifle stocks, I was actually at Dartmouth College making gun stocks in the student workshops in college. You know, how, those were different days back then, I'll tell you, because you, you can't do that now, I'm pretty sure, anywhere. <laughs> so, and, or later when I was in the Air Force, I was making rifle stocks on, in Air Force wood shops on the bases. You know, I, uh, it was kind of funny. I think about the different places I was deployed to where I was cutting out gun stocks and people were like, what the heck is that guy doing? But um, anyway, uh, so the rifle stock idea was going on in the 80s. Um, and I, and I had people, they were, they were really cool and really different. You know, they were unique and they were made of advanced materials at the time, carbon fiber and, uh, and a kind of wood called Sitka spruce and they had a special laminate that made them super strong and as light as they could be. And, um, and I had people asking me to make them hunting rifles, um, like these biathlon rifle stocks I was making. And it's a totally different thing, totally different shape and it wouldn't make no sense to put a, a, you know, a 30 odd six in one of those things. So, um, but the idea, the seed was planted and I thought, yeah, you know, that'd be you could make more money making hunting stuff than, than biathlon rifle stocks. <laughs> and so, uh, I, you know, I had the idea of this, uh, not just a gun stock company that would be in, involved direct towards hunting, but really a, a gear company inspired by that guy that had been, you know, gone onto the North face. And, and so, you know, in the eighties, I started with this vision of, of a company that would be, you know, the North face with guns, a, a performance gear company built in, in the shooting sports industry. And that was really the genesis of what has become Everly Stock. Um, but, you know, then I went from the biathlon team to, oddly enough, getting recruited to fly jets. And so who would turn that down? I was, I was like, me? I could, I could have a shot at that. And they're, they're like, yeah. And so, uh, yeah, you go fly jets. And, um, and, and so I became a, a went through Air Force flight school and became a, a military pilot in, Air, in the Air National Guard, uh, initially flying a couple different kinds of F-4, which a lot of people don't even know what that is, but it was, in my mind, the baddest-ass airplane ever made. It was really fun. The Phantom. Yeah, How were F-4 they? Phantom. Just rewind a little bit. So yeah. they were like, you're really good at skiing. You going to fly a plane? It was about like that. It really was weirdly, uh, ski racing led me to being recruited into the uh, military. And, and the truth is, guys were trying to recruit me in, a, in the Army, and I was like... I'm not going to join the army, you know, not, not only no, but H no. Um, but then somebody <laughs> mentioned the, uh, the air force and that, you know, the guys got to sleep in nice beds with sheets and 
and fly fast, you know, afterburner airplanes. I was like, that, that sounds pretty good. And of course, the movie Top Gun was out at the time. I was, you know, that was sort of a, every, every kid wanted to be a fighter pilot when that came out. So, yeah, that kind of backfired on the Navy. They, uh, <laughs> yeah, right. that, I know, yeah, nobody understands. With, yeah, I helped out with recruiting with the Air Force immensely. So, yeah, I mean, no kidding. I mean, that's just, that's just funny because you, you go from, you know, Olympic, being an Olympian obviously wasn't enough for you. Being, right. you know, working on rifle stocks and starting your own company and being an entrepreneur wasn't enough. And then the Air Force happened. So uh, did you did you only fly F-4s or did you nope. move on to anything else? Yeah, I, uh, so, uh, you know, the, it was an interesting time, really. I mean, it, it, when I was first into it, you know, Air National Guard units were not you know, they were sort of stateside operations, right? Um, but I joined the Idaho Guard, and uh, the first mission we had was the was reconnaissance, the RF four, which was one of the fastest fighter planes ever built. I mean, it was just super fun because it was a it was a slick, you know, fast moving airplane, one of the few true Mach two airplanes, you know. And I'm one of the few people who can say, I, yeah, I've gone Mach two. Um, <laughs> so really lucky to get to do that. Um, but then, evolution of things uh, post the first, you know the first shooting war in the Gulf, uh, right after that, the air force was trying to get rid of these old airplanes. And so they wanted to give the guard, uh, this mission called the wild weasel, the F four G wild weasel. And, and it was a anti surface air missile suppression, uh, mission. And for a guard unit to get that was cause it was a frontline mission. And it, it was really extraordinary for them to even think of that, giving that to a guard unit. And our unit was the kind of unit that would saddle up and go, yeah, we'll go to war. Absolutely. We want to go. So, um, so we were uh, transitioned into the weasel in, in around 1992, I think it was. And, and then spent several years deploying to the middle East, either um, Turkey or Saudi Arabia <coughs> or in the region, <coughs> excuse me, and flying into Iraq, uh, you know, when it was still Saddam Hussein's Iraq, kind of, there, there was still shooting going on. I, you know, I got to shoot at a SAM site one night out of the weasel and that was pretty cool. Um, you know, big harm missile going off the wing at a, in the middle of the night was spectacular. And so that's pretty awesome. Uh, yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> yeah. Listen, man, that's yeah. yeah JTAX, you can say whatever you want about calling those things. Whoa, in, but whoa, when whoa. the pilot, when the pilot loses that weapon, that's got to be something to see. Yeah, it was it was pretty sensational. So anyway, uh, a, a bunch of adventures over there, uh, flying the weasel uh, through several years. And then um, in 1995, our unit transitioned to the A-10. And uh, it's funny because when I, when I, people ask me, hey, what'd you fly? I go, yeah, I flew the uh, F-4, you know, and the A-10. And and everybody goes, oh, the A-10, oh, that's so cool. I'm like, yeah, it really was cool. In, in truth, though, um, I always felt like the thing was missing afterburners. You know, you just, I, I'd always have the throttles up going, is this all the faster this thing can go? So you're um, saying you had a need, a need for speed? For speed, or truly. Oh, truly. absolutely. Yeah, I'm going to top gun it all the way up. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, uh, but the, it was just such a different kind of airplane and such a different mission than the F-4 had been. It was unusual to, to make the transition. I was actually the the one of the first couple guys from our squadron to go from the F-4 to the A-10 and, and then, you know, led the unit through the transition as an instructor pilot um, and became a forward air controller, an air fac. So we went through all that stuff. Never, never did what you know, some of you guys have done in, in the ground end of that. But, uh, but be, that mission was actually kind of cool because it was the first time when I really stopped to think about the broader scheme of our purpose and, you know, in the, 
Air Force. And, the, you know, because in the mission I'd been in, it was really an Air Force-focused mission, whether, whatever it was. Um, you know, we were, we were thinking about airplanes and counter-air and, and counter-SAM and all that kind of counter-seed and all that kind of stuff. But um, with the A-10, you really work on the broad perspective. I mean, it was, it was an army asset as much as more so than anything and, or, you know, ground sort of force asset. And so that was just a cool thing to really to think, because I, I guess, you know, to back up, you, it wasn't just that I wanted that I, you know, was, I saw a type wanted to be a fighter pilot. The truth is I'm a, I'm an American patriot and always loved, you know, the idea of our military. Um, and then when I got to go be part of it, it was, it was an honor as well. It's just a great experience all the way around. And, uh, and then, you know, the A-10 was certainly um, an, a great platform for me to kind of realize the broader uh, place or, or, or the place in the broader role that that, that, that that flying these things had. And so that was a, that was pretty cool. So with the, with the hog, right, hog driver, yeah. you got, did I hear you right? You were FAC-A? Yeah. Yep. So yeah. that is a... Um, I don't want to say it's dying out, unfortunately, but it is it is not being prioritized the way it should be. And the yeah. whole community knows that and is aware of that. And right. same with the Viper community. So it's it's um, gaining speed again, if you will. But um, so I imagine you were also Sandy qualified as well, right? Being yeah. up in Boise. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. that's uh, that's pretty awesome. So, yeah. you know. One of the reasons why JTACs or Joint Terminal Air Controllers or Attack Controllers, um, you know, like hogs, because you were talking about it a little bit, is the mentality of hog drivers is very ground-centric. Yeah, you guys have some other roles, but, I mean, primarily you are a close air support, you know, yeah. that is your function. So you guys think like the ground, which is why JTACs and, and hog drivers like really, really mesh well. So what were some of your, did you have any experiences and were they positive, negative? <laughs> did I have experiences? <laughs> a lot of experiences. You know, I, I, I with, with JTACs. Yeah, right. No, I mean, uh, well, the truth is uh, in the, in the hog, like I said, I was the lead. I mean, I flew the first A-10 into Boise, Idaho, which was pretty cool. Um, and I, and I was instrumental in uh, leading the squadron through learning how to fly the A-10 and how to employ it and all that. But in the middle of that, you know, evolution, um, somewhere in there, I decided, I remember my, well, I had two, two things happening. One was um, I had a family and, uh, uh, and I had this company inside my head that I started in 1987 inside my head, but never really developed much. And so I just had this kind of tension all the time about what I was doing. And, and even though I loved flying airplanes, I'd find myself, you know, walking around, touching the wing of an A-10, doing a pre-flight, but my mind somewhere else. And so eventually in there, I realized, you know, I probably need to re-evaluate re what I'm doing with my life. And, um, I went and became an airline pilot. So, uh, my, cause my dad had been an airline pilot. And again, the fact that I ended up in aviation was totally happenstance. I mean, it had nothing to do with him or what he had done, uh, but it happens that having, you know, when I was a full-time fighter pilot and going to work before it got light and leaving after it got dark six days a week, I, you know, I remembered my dad when I was a kid going, I don't have to work this month. That's a pretty good deal. Like I, I should look at that and, and, and maybe, um, you know, thinking that in the in the in the time off i'd be free to continue fl continue flying in the guard uh because i'd been full, a full-time guard uh, pilot 
through, up to that point. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, so I decided to go uh, fly for United Airlines and uh, started that in, in 1997. Um, and then, uh, you know, I missed all the good wars because it was one thing or another, but our squadron went to war quite a lot with the A-10, um, and they've done, they've done some remarkable things in all the theaters that you guys are familiar with. But, uh, but I, unfortunately, personally missed, uh, you know, I, went to, I deployed to Kuwait and flew in Iraq and some of that stuff, but it was never, you know, the, the really essential uh, uh, use that, that the A-10 got over there. So, but I heard a lot of the stories and, and cheered the guys on. And meanwhile, I was um, flying for uh, United and, uh, yeah, and, and still, you know, catching some, some time in the A-10 when I could up to 2000. Well, that's, that's just absolutely insane. Like, of course, like we we're here and, and we always try to speak directly to our audience and, and try to try to always circle everything back with that. But the things I'm hearing from you, like you just went from first to first to first, <laughs> like from flying, like you were an Olympian and then that sort of got boring and that wasn't enough of a challenge. So you just decided to go become a pilot, which is a challenge in and of itself. And then to transfer, you know, multiple airframes and then go on to become a, a pilot and, and, you know, united and, and from further on to, to start your own wildly successful business that we, we all dig like those, those sort of never <laughs> be satisfied, you know, attitudes that always seeking out that next challenge and always, um, always striving to, to do your best. Okay. That has a lot like that reverberates a ton with the, the people that we're talking directly to, to those people that are, are making that transition. Okay. What were some of the obstacles that you've overcome along your way? So, uh, you know, at any time, did somebody just just blatantly tell you like, Hey, this thing isn't going to work or, or, you know, did somebody stand in your way maybe in, in your, in your time that that was an yeah, obstacle that you'd I, had to come over? Sure. I mean, I've, I've, if, if you look at my resume and there's probably more to it than what I've, we've just said, I've, I've had a really How? remarkable, <laughs> I mean, How? honestly, I've had a really remarkable existence. <laughs> I look at it sometimes and I'm like, wow, this, that's kind of, you know, it's a good ride. It's, it's pretty, I, and I'm, I've learned humility along the way because I've screwed things up. You know, I've, I've failed enough at things to know that I'm not a perfect human being. Um, but at the same time, I'm obviously somebody that strives to be better. And, to, and you know, one of our mottos at Everly Stock is t- to make it better. You know, if there's something that's that's not quite there or if, if we ever have a product issue, you know, we we, we attack it. We, we make it better. Um, in my, in, again, but back to the your question, I mean – a person that sees, you know, the string of things that the remarkable, you know, Forrest Gump life I've had um, would think that I'm either really talented or really lucky or both probably. Right. And in some ways I, I am certainly very lucky, you know, I, I believe in that, but, at the, but I think you also make your own luck. Um, but I, the things I'll say are though that little of this has come naturally to me. I mean, I've had to bust my ass and I, I think the one thing that I'm good at is busting my ass, you know, and, and, uh, I mentioned my little league baseball career. Well, that was sort of, you know, in part and parcel with a lot of things in my life. I mean, I wasn't the best student in college and I wasn't the best, uh, ski racer initially on any team I was on. And, um, I was one of the best pilots when I, <laughs> <laughs> Join the squad. <laughs> I will say that I, you know, I had an affinity for um, for flying airplanes. I don't know what it was. It wasn't because of my father or anything else. It's just that I just loved it. I, I found joy in flying, and so um, I uh, I that started in, in pilot training in the Air Force Flight School. I just I was I was a guy that instructor pilots liked to fly with because I would have fun when I flew, and I, and I think that positive attitude 
carried me a long way. Um, because by that time, I, I guess I had, you know, checked a lot of the boxes of success that made me realize the joy of life. Um, but I think one of the things I like to tell people that I think is important for people to know is that I am absolutely just an average person who is, you know, chosen a path of what, you know, of adventure and, and, you know, enthusiastically embracing the next thing and trying to figure it out and try to do it. But, um, I guess, uh, yeah, you, you asked if, you know, if I've been directly challenged, I've been directly challenged a million ways and I, I constantly am, but, um, uh, but by this time, you know, I, I, I kind of am, have learned to take things in stride and just carry on. Um, and sure. yeah. I guess to, to back up to, um, again, check, check the boxes that, that I've checked. It's, it's, it's kind of crazy to, to look back at it, but, um, one of the things I, I really learned in aviation and in, in, in military aviation was the, that, you know, my, one of my talents was the ability to deal with things I didn't under, understand or didn't know to just go. And it's not quite to blow it off, but to realize the healthily that you can never know everything. So why bother, you know, getting worried about that? You know, you, you, you it, a lot of people think that you have to be a perfectionist to be a fighter pilot or Olympian or anything. And the truth is you don't, you just have to be better than the people around you, <laughs> better than your opponent. Um, but also, uh, you know, realize that they have vulnerabilities just like you do. And, and therefore you shouldn't worry about your vulnerabilities. You just, you just, you know, make, make the attack. And, um, man, that's, you know, I, I can't connect with that anymore. That is a fantastic statement. Right. Well, yeah, that's, yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's exactly what we preach all the time is like, if you're not like, you have to go on the attack and you have to embrace that stuff, especially with, with you transitioning from, from one thing to the next. A lot of, a lot of the questions that we get on the DMS are, Hey, I, I just don't know how to make this next step or I'm worried about this change. You've, you've risked your career. You know, you could have had a perfectly good life as a, a 25, 30 year A-10 pilot or F-4 pilot or Olympian or coach or successful business owner. What advice would you give to people that are, are kind of wishy-washy on, on really going all in, really, you know, we say burning the boats or earning each breath and really getting 100% into it. How would you, what would you say to them? as a guy that's sort of, you're sort of the subject matter expert in deciding to do a new and hard thing. What, what advice would you give to them? Um, I guess the, the first part would be what I was just essentially just saying is, is to, you don't worry about what you don't know. You know, you, you, people that focus on what they don't know or become concerned about their lack of worth or whatever that is, you know, that itself becomes the wrong kind of focus and slows you down. So, um, you start with what you do know or what you can, what you can ascertain, and then you pursue it from there. You know, it's, it's like getting a foothold and then climbing up something. And, and so, um, you know, every transition in life is uncertain. Every, every new venture is like, well, I don't know if this is going to work, but once you've, once, once you've done that enough, or it doesn't even have to be enough. I mean, once is enough. If you understand what you just did and that you went into something un with uncertainty, um, but you conquered it anyway. And, and that's what, that's really what life is. You know, it's not, there's never a sure thing. And if there is that sort of uninteresting, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, one of the questions I get a lot when I go over to like prep and brief people or the recruiters is, is uh, from the young people about to join is what, what can I do after I get out? And my answer always is you can do whatever you want. If you Literally make it whatever. in this community, 
you know, and whether, you know, and I think the, the fighter pilot, obviously I love the A-10 guys, you know, like as I think all ground pounders are like have a, a huge, I'm trying not to fanboy out too much right now, <laughs> but that, that mentality that makes you good at that, that mentality that makes you good at spec ops, um, I, I, I always tell them they can do whatever they want with their lives after that. And so I think my question is, is you, you mentioned your, your, uh, your aviation experience and, and being comfortable with not knowing everything about everything. Was there anything else from your military career that kind of helped you uh, push the needle forward uh, with, with Everly stock and everything else that you've done since yeah. then? Well, yeah. I mean, without question, because a lot, a large part of what, you know, the military does for people is it just, it grounds you in, in, in a number of meaningful things, you know, camaraderie, you get the kind of camaraderie in a military unit that you're not going to get anywhere else. And that's a, you know, that's embraces, you know, friendship and trust and things that are meaningful between human beings. And that's a good thing. To, that's a good place to get grounded and, you know, how to relate to people and how to engage and how to be honest, how to, how to critique without, you know, destroying feelings or, or if you destroy feelings, how to redeem it afterwards, <laughs> you know, so there's all kinds of good there that, that happens from those things. And then um, beyond that, I don't care what, you know, you don't have to be a fighter pilot to gain confidence in yourself in the military. And, and, and so it's just a great place, you know, to be pushed to, to, th to do things that you wouldn't have done otherwise, or get, be given opportunities you would have gotten otherwise and, you know, conquer your doubts and, and prove yourself to your peers. And, uh, you know, the fact, I can't think of a better place to, for where that can happen in a meaningful way for a, for a person than in the military. I mean, I just absolutely. And, and then, you know, all of that, those sorts of things, and there's a lot more to be said than just what I just said, but all of that, I think, uh, leads to life skills that are, that are important. And so when you were asking, you know, what if guy, you know, guy learns how to become a ejection seat mechanic or something, and what can I do after that? Well, you know, if you, if, if, if you embrace, all the things that go into being in the military and whatever your specialty is, the specialty doesn't matter. I mean, some of the people that impress me the most in life are those that, that, um, you know, that have that, it, it can be anything. I mean, you know, it could be that I will, I was an Eng English literature major in college and I look at them like, well, why? And they tell me why, well, it's because I learned, I, I learned there to communicate with people and then, Oh, that, you know, that's, that's cool. So the same is going to be true of just about any military path you take and that um if you approach it the right way and and persevere and move through it you know you're going to come out of that there a better stronger you know smarter more life aware person and uh and that's and you know that the questions later become who cares that you're an injection seat technician you know the fact is that you're a life aware person and, and, and you can look me in the eye and have a conversation um those are the things that are going to get you in any door that you want to get in as you go forward Right. And I think one of the big things that I always preach and one of our sayings is like the rifle doesn't lie. Right. And like the airframe doesn't lie. And whatever that the in this community, you're forced to become super honest with yourself. You can't BS your way through it. There's nothing else you can do. So I think that the things that you learn about yourself, like you like you were saying, like that, that just leads to, to more success because you're not you're fully aware of, of what you're doing and what it takes to be successful because the, you know, everybody knows if you're not, you know, there's no in between. It's, it's a yes or a no. Uh, yeah. Cool. Yeah. I think um, just kind of along, along that vein, some of the things that you're talking about here is your work ethic and that has been outstanding. Like you talked about. And then once you start something that you're interested in, you finish it out, you see it through 
and you put as much as you can into that, that one thing and do the best job you can. And I think that's one of the things that we talk about too, is, you know, every time you, if you're doing a job where you're mopping the bathroom at McDonald's or whatever, do the best job that you can at whatever task is in front of you. And that is a huge thing. Um, so along that vein with militaries and entrepreneurship, most entrepreneurs, you know, at least half the businesses go under in the first couple of years. Um, yours is successful so far. Um, and you're doing a great job making awesome products. Um, you know, what, what are some of the things that, uh, you know, military taught you that translated into specifically entrepreneurship? Well, okay. So it's interesting, I I guess, uh, well, I, I was, I was that guy in the squadron who was kind of an art guy, you know? And so, uh, you know, I, I'm the guy that figured out a way to get the cool, you know, skull patches that you made for the squadron and, and, and get the, you know, squadron cleaned up and, and looking better and, and put pride in the place. And so, um, you know, pride in organization was something that I actually know that I, that I helped instill in the places that I was part of. And, and, you know, that, relating to an organization and, and it's, you know, I started Everly stock as a one man show. It took me a while before I had an organization, but I always had the vision of, you know, where it would be going. Um, so again, I think, you know, the structure of, in the group dynamics of a good organization are things that, that certainly carried me well. And as far as the business thing goes, but yeah, there's a lot of other things. I mean, you know, by the time I got to doing this for real, I, I, uh, I'd learned, you know, a lot of, common sense, I think. And so, you know, common sense will carry a long way in life if you, if you learn it and apply it. And um, common sense is not common. That is, that, is, <laughs> that is a big thing. Right. Yeah. And, and so another one, it kind of relates back to what you guys were just saying. And that is, um, you know, nothing's pretend. You can't pretend to be a businessman. You either are or you aren't. And so I, you know, I'd seen examples of entrepreneurs who failed, you know, and one of the classics is a guy that had a great invention of, uh, you know, for a, a pistol holster uh, for police use initially and um and he you know hired a bunch of people and put a bunch of computers in a room and had, had you know had built something that looked like a business if somebody walked in but he did that well before they had product to sell and then you know spent so much time focused on that peripheral stuff and on the you know perfecting this design that he had that uh, by the time he was really needed to sell it um he'd only developed a right hand one and no police force would buy it because he didn't have a left hand one you know, and, and so the, the obvious answer is to recognize that obstacle a lot earlier, but then also, you know, focus on the essential things. And, and in my case, you know, I was very conservative in the ways that I approached building a business. And one reason why is because I mentioned I'd been an airline pilot. Well, you know, this my business actually started on September 11th, 2001 and, and for, for what it is now, because even though I I'd done things before then and had, you know, something on my tax return for the Everly stock company each year. Um, I, uh, by 01, I was an airline pilot and, uh, uh, you know, junior captain at United and living the good life. And, uh, but that day I woke up and went, shoot, my life just changed. You know, this company could be out of business tomorrow. And, and so, you know, my approach to starting the company that was in my head was to be very conservative and careful and, and, it goes back to that bust ass thing. You know, I did not spend money if I didn't have to spend money. I did not hire somebody to do something if I could do it myself. And I, that was that way for a long time. I mean, I really, you know, burned the midnight oil night and day. Um, 
Yeah. And I think that is something that people just don't realize because we get those questions all the time. They say, you know, I'm a, I'm a nurse at an ER or I work 40 hours a week or a full-time job doing my stuff. And I find myself not able to work out, not able to whatever, do the, do the pool hours. You know, um, I'm myself, I've only been in the entrepreneur business for, you know, a couple of years right now, but you can see the packages behind us. You know, we still pack all the packages every night before everything goes out, answer all the emails. Um, and messages. We all know what it's like over the past year since we started doing the ones ready thing. Um, and it takes a lot of time. What was the, how long did you go for, you know, working a day job and then working at night also? It's probably like 12, 16 hour days or something like that. How long did you have to do that for to make this successful? Uh, about seven years of real, of, of night and day, you know, every day, really hard work on my part. Um, and again, there's a couple of things that, yeah, I, I would really had a different path, different journey, I guess. And so it was supported by the fact that I was an airline pilot. I mean, let's be honest, you know, that was a pretty good income that didn't require a great deal of mental. Um, once you learn how to do it, I was, I was a good pilot by that point. I mean, I was, a, I had fun flying airplanes and, you know, uh, but I could fill in, the, in all the interstitial space with this thing that was in my head. And, you know, a lot of guys sit around in the ready room reading a magazine or something, and I'd be sitting there, you know, studying how you write patents or, <laughs> or, you know, I, just a ton of things that I did myself in those early days, uh, taking orders when the, you know, when the cell phone, the, the air, when the Everly stock company phone rang, rang, it was my cell phone. And it only rang if I wasn't in the air, if I wasn't in the air, I'd answer it and, uh, take an order and write it on a piece of paper, stick it in my pocket and go ship it later. Um, Stuff like that, though, you know, that that was all I was very conservative, but I did have another gig to, to put food on the table for the family while I built the company. And um, and that took, you know, like I said, it was probably about seven years before I could finally go, OK, you know, it's time to actually hire some help and do the things that, um, you know, to make this go where it can go. Um, and, and the truth is, we'd have gone a lot further and faster had I taken a different path. I mean, there were different ways to do business. I I I chose to do one where I knew I would own the company until I didn't want to anymore, you know, where I, 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 I didn't take investors and I, and I had really a special set of ideas and a unique set of ideas that nobody had pursued before. And so I was really a pioneer in this brand and, and, and the kinds of products we were making and all kinds of ways that most people don't even know. A lot of the things I've done have become common in backpacks and, and nylon gear that people go, Oh, if I tell them, oh, I invented that. And there's hundreds of hundreds of things like that out there. But which is again, it's kind of cool. But uh, the, but the reason why it is what it is and went the way it did is because of that kind of very conservative approach. But also, you know, um, I play, I've been playing the long game. I I started slowly and, and carefully and built it step by step. And I really never did anything I couldn't pay for. So that's not the best way to build a business, but it is the best way to build a business. If you want to, you know, keep the lights on when the, when the, when the engines stop, you know, and, and that was really always my, my plan was to just to know that we're, that I was secure, um, that I wasn't over leveraged, that I was going to be fine if I needed to, you know, deal with something. And so, um, that said, um, like I said, I, I, you know, I've been playing the long game. I mean, the, the cool thing now is that uh, we've established a great reputation as a brand and as a company. And, uh, you know, 
guys like you have used our stuff in, in battle and, and come back and, and generally given us good feedback. And that, you know, to me, that's one of our greatest honors. And, and it's something that if I, I can say all the stuff I've done, but, you know, getting feedback about snipers coming back from wars that tell me that they're, that I was saving lives because of the mobility issues they had solved or the, you know, the fact that their weapons were finally concealed and they weren't getting shot because they were carrying a scoped rifle around and, you know, things like that are, you know, in, meaningful in ways that I could never just describe the honor that I felt in, in that. Um, so all that is, is sort of, is, is our background. And now the cool thing is I've, we're building a really cool company now. I mean, I've got a brand and I've got the, you know, the, the lineage that makes people trust us, but now we're actually, you know, moving forward with smart people and I'm, and I'm handing off a lot of the things that I used to do to make us better as an organization. And it's pretty, pretty, pretty awesome to be at this point right now. Yeah, no kidding. I imagine so. Yeah. <laughs> well, since we're already talking about the business, I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot just a little bit. Sure. Um, so our audience is comprised of mainly new recruits, younger guys, right? We do have some of the guys that are on the teams or that are in the supply shops that are ordering stuff. So the, the first question is for the young guys that are, you know, training to come into air force special warfare what is the one piece of kit that you would recommend them getting from eberlystock.com <laughs> well, that's a nice thing to ask i i'm always too humble to say oh you should buy something from ours because i'm like when people buy something from us i'm like you did uh, i'm surprised and they say they like it i go you do <laughs> well, well I, the, the reason why i'm asking is because we we get that question right. you know we we always say hey you know, yep. go to eberlystock.com, use the promo codes one's ready, and then, right, right, you know, right. get some get some apparel so packs, it's, it's whatever. It's difficult for me to say one thing. Um, you know, uh, we have some, uh, some like, we have a pack called the FAC track, FAC, you know, the FAC track. And that was named after one that's, that it came from called the half track. And so, so we have some great kind of elemental three-day pack kind of packs. And, and the fact track is, a, is really well regarded by forwarder controllers and people that have to carry radios. And so going into that kind of specialty, that's a great product. A good scale also. There's lots of good reasons why it's a, it is a good pack. But, but the, the thing with packs that I've learned is that I never am good at telling people what they should get because it's a very personal thing, you know, and, and, uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and scale and, you know, your personal needs are things I can never judge no matter how many times I, how many thousands of people I talk to about it. So, you know, so we, but it, I have some packs that come to mind, um, you know, a small one called the H31 bandit that people just love. That's a simple, like, uh, you know, I don't know if you'd call it a one day pack or an everyday carry pack, but a nice little handy pack. And it's the kind of thing that, you know, we try to make things a little bit more than a bag with straps. You know, we have a little bit of interior detailing, just enough kind of essence there to make it something special beyond your, your typical bag with straps. Um, But, you know, the bandit is at the smaller end of that scale. And then another one that's really, you know, connecting with people for everyday use is, is one called the F5 switchblade. And it's just a great all. I have a switchblade right next to me right now. That pack is fantastic. Like I'm not joking, man. Like I was, I was actually going to bring the switchblade up as a, you know, for for uh, medical dudes, right? Like you're always looking for a couple different things. Like you need to be able to just shove stuff in it. You need to be able to have separate compartments for things. You need to have like easy access to the outside. I love that thing. I was even telling, uh, you know, I was telling somebody I was having a conversation with Mike. Um, you might know him. He's your favorite employee of all time. Um, but 
no, Mike and I were talking about it. I was like, holy crap, man, like this thing is fantastic um, for all those reasons that you said. Yeah, here's mine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that switchblade. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a... For, for heavy stuff, I like you personally. I like using the F1 mainframe for like oh, right. really heavy stuff because it's got an external frame. I'm I'm old, so I like the old Alice frame rucks. So yeah. that one I connect with the F1 mainframe a lot more than maybe some of the others. But right, I mean that's that's just me. Yeah, right on. Well, and, and again, I just got I, that's the kind of conversation where I go, okay, yeah, that's you know one I hadn't thought of in the context of this conversation. On the one hand, on the other hand. You know, everything in our line right now, it came out of my head. I've I designed every pack that Everly Stock makes. And I haven't known how many we've made or, made or how many packs I've designed for years. <laughs> I don't have any SKUs I have um, or we have. But uh, so we have a lot of diversity in the line. And, and the cool thing, again, is that um, that um, is a sign of maturity in some ways, but also a vitality. You know, we, we're mature in that, like the switchblade has little loops on the side of it. And we have a hookup kit that would hook it to that mainframe pack that you were talking about. So the mainframe is just a frame, but if you wanted to make it a modular pack system, unsuspectingly, that little switchblade that people like so much will go onto it and crank it on. And, and, and now you've got a, a bag um, as well as the frame system. And, and you can put things between them, a duffel bag or something you need to carry. So that, that kind of, intuitive instantaneous modularity is really cool and and again one of the interesting things of where we are is that we've not been good at telling people about that i mean that our challenge a few years ago became the fact that i kind of quit telling people about stuff just i just <laughs> makes new stuff and <laughs> and, uh, and then eventually we go hey we well, should try to I'm, sell those so i'm uh, glad that we had you on so you could tell a whole bunch more people about this <laughs> yeah so uh, now though we you know as we become better at communicating the magic that we have, you know, how you can connect things that people didn't know connected. Um, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. We've got a really good thing, uh, you know, set of things coming up in the future, just in that, just because of that. I mean, that was going to be my next question actually is what's, what's in the future for Eberly stock. Well, I mean, a lot, you know, we're, um, I'm, I'm pretty excited right now to, like I said, to be developing a, I have a great team of people. I mean, uh, aside from Mike McBride, I have other favorite employees. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you said like, aside from Mike McBride, who is not my favorite, like, <laughs> no, no, I have good employees no, and no, then there's Mike. No, but no, we have, but everybody here, you know, we have a really cool diverse crew and, and it's just like, you can look around and go, okay, you know, these guys fit and, and, and one of them is a woman and she fits. And, and, uh, um, and we have, you know, definitely, more on the way you know we're going to continue to develop you know bringing in the right guy at the right moment for the right purpose and uh and as that happens um you know i have a, a young designer now who it's pretty cool this, the kid came out of me he came to me this past year out of industrial design school and he sent me a portfolio and told me he wanted to work for everly stock and i looked at the portfolio and i was really impressed and 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 i told him you know um this is going to be a really unique opportunity for you because you're going to come to work you know, with, and work with me and, and we're the two designers for this company. And you're soon going to be the only designer for this company <laughs> and whoever else comes in, you know, you're, and so a kid right out of school, you know, I gave I, enough trust. Well, first of all, you know, he's got the right character to, to allow me to, you know, work with him, but also, uh, you know, I just put trust in people and, and, you know, shove them off the edge and see what happens. And so young Nathaniel Tong is, uh, is you know, getting, getting, 
trial by fire, but he's making, he's got some of the products next year are not going to just have been designed by me. Some of them are designed by Nathaniel. So, and, and some of the focus are, you know, that we have now to answer your question earlier was we, um, we have a great reputation for making a very useful utilitarian and robust product. I mean, you can take our pack to Afghanistan and it's not going to break in the middle of nowhere. If it does, well, stuff happens, you know, if you, slam a plastic buckle in a door of a Humvee, well, it might break. And that, you know, that's going to happen to any pack, but our stuff's pretty well made. It's pretty, you know, our warranty department with hundreds of thousands of packs in the world is lights out five days a week with, you know, a couple hours a day and, and one day a week, a girl in there work on stuff. And um, there's not another nylon company in the world that could say that at our scale. Um, so having said that though, you know, you mentioned earlier taking the cardboard out of the MREs and, and lightening things up. Um, we're definitely aware of the fact that we need to become more efficient. And, and you know, we've done really cool, complicated stuff, stuff that changed the game as far as the way a lot of different specialties have gone to war, especially guys that carry weapons. But um, now we go, okay, we can still do that. We still have all that in our stable, but we're also going to focus now on some kind of lighter load-bearing systems that um, that work well, especially, you know, with military uh focus uh we're going to start working on integration of the plate carrier and 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 your um you know load bearing stuff and it makes if you need a guy to test it if the if the plate (laughs) carrier is any indication if it's half as comfortable as the packs i know a guy (laughs) okay right yeah well we're working on things like that that you know it's not all gonna happen at once thing at a time but uh but we have good stuff and on the way i only only need one plate maybe (laughs) maybe two plate carriers whatever i'm I'm an extra large Okay, right. All right. What else? What else you guys want to know? That's awesome. Oh, I think we're we're about to wrap up. I just wanted to point something out. We recently had the wing commander on that's basically basically over all of uh, the special tactics guys, which is what we do. And the two things he talked about with the the hiring employees basically was character and his leadership philosophy was trust. And I just wanted to point that out to two very high level people that are in charge of a lot of stuff. Um, so if you're not you're out there and you're not picking up on that. Um, it, it's obviously very important and it leads to success. Uh, so Glenn, if, if people want to reach out to you, is there any way, or do they just go to everlystock.com and, and, uh, reach out? Yeah, I, I would give you my email address, but the truth is it's, uh, that's sketchy as it is. So I'm not going to do that, so, but yeah, I mean, certainly through our company is a great place. And, uh, I do have an Instagram account that I dabble in a little bit. Uh, uh, I think it's everlystock.glenn it might be the handle, something like that. Anyway, uh, I can be found on, on the uh, Instagram or through the company on the web. Awesome. Well, if, if no one has anything else, I think we're about done here. That's a good place to end. Okay. So Appreciate the uh, great products. Oh, thank yeah. you. Oh, yeah. I love your yeah, hat. Thank you. You look good, man. <laughs> oh, what, what was that? Oh, oh I can't, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't get anything for the shirt. Come on, man. I didn't want to suck up too much. Here. I, I love your shirt. That's an awesome shirt. <laughs> uh, thank you guys for your support. I really, I'm honored uh, that you guys get it, and and it's just, it's really cool knowing there's guys like uh, you out there that uh, that have benefited from what we've done, and uh, and you know, we're just always trying to make it better. But thank you. And the pleasure is all ours. So uh, if you're out there and you're listening, if you want to get into anything difficult, I think some of the things, the key things that I took away from this podcast personally is uh, take advantage of the opportunities as they come to you. Uh, work hard, bust your butt, uh, always say yes, 
And uh, you know, when you get to those leadership positions, it's, it's trust your people and then hire or, or be surround yourself with people of character. That's what leads to success. Uh, so for everybody else out there, make sure you're earning each breath. Go out there, leave us reviews, and we'll catch you next time. This one's ready. Signing off.